So uh, good afternoon, welcome to the November edition of our Cyber Risk Wednesday. We actually landed on a Wednesday this time, which is rare. Um, my name is Joshua Corman. I'm the director for the Cyber Statecraft Initiative here at the, the Brent Scawcraft Center on International Security. Um, welcome to you watching our streaming online as well. I encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ACCyber. Uh, it wouldn't hurt this time around if you also used SW liability for software liability. Um, the tags AC Scawcroft uh, and CSM Passcode. As always, I'd also like to, to, to welcome and thank our media partner, the Christian Science Monitor's Passcode, for joining us today. Uh, these, this afternoon's conversation uh, starts with a joke. Um, a lawyer, an insurer, an economist, and a cybersecurity guy walk into a bar. Um, you'll see that shortly. Uh, but what really, we, we really want to thank and um, greet a really diverse group of experts from multidisciplinary angles that are going to need to come to bear on this really complex topic that we've wrestled with for over 30 years. Uh, and the panelists uh, will represent the fields of law, economics, insurance, regulatory levers, and cybersecurity. Um, we want to look beyond the old arguments. I am not a fan of admiring the problem. There's a lot of things that have kept us stuck. There have been a lot of obstacles to meaningful advancements on this topic. Uh, myself and others believe we are out of time, or nearly out of time, uh, to come up with what we want the incentive structure to look like around software, IoT, and embedded systems. Uh, now that bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, now that we're seeing the externalities of poor hygiene manifest in attacks like uh, the Mirai botnet that took out Dyn and Netflix and, uh, and other uh, major internet services for the better part of a day, um, at some point, and by some criteria, we'll need some incentive change to make sure that the digital infrastructure we depend upon is reliable and trustworthy. Uh, if we do it right, we will correct free market forces and continue to enjoy innovation. If we do it wrong, uh, we could break very large parts of the economy and that would be a bad thing. Um, so what we really want to do is push past some of those cliches and dogma and, and ask ourselves what's changed and if we were to see a triggering event, uh, at which point and by which criteria would we want to take some sort of intelligent corrective action. Uh, now before we kick off this uh, diverse panel, um, I am very honored to welcome Bruce Schneier, uh, who is internet famous and a, a rock star and joining us from California over Skype uh, to give us some opening remarks. Um, Bruce has been looking at this issue for a very, very long time and recently testified to the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, on uh, reactions to the Mirai botnet. Um, he is internationally renowned security technologist, runs the influential blog uh, Schneier on Security. He's authored 14 books, uh, including the New York Times bestseller Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. Uh, he's also a fellow at Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, a board member for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and a special advisor at IBM Security. Bruce, thank you so much for doing this today. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. So someone give me a sign that you can actually hear me. All right, excellent. Uh, so I'm actually going to tell you basically what I told Congress a couple of weeks ago. And, and that's really to speak to Josh's point is of why the time is now. And I think the time is now for a whole bunch of reasons. And the way to think about the world is that we're creating technology where everything is a computer. Right, so, so this smartphone is actually a computer that makes phone calls. Your refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold. Your microwave is a computer that keeps things hot. The ATM machine is a computer with money inside. 
Your car is no longer a mechanical device with a bunch of computers in it, but it is a hundred computer network with four wheels and an engine. And this is the Internet of Things. And my experience is from the computer security, and that is becoming everything security. So I have four truisms from my world that we all need to know. So the first one is that attack is easier than defense. A lot of reasons for this. It's not obvious. I could spend an hour on it. But to give you a flavor, complexity is the worst enemy of security. As systems get more complex, they get harder to secure. And the Internet is the most complex machine mankind has ever built. And a lot of reasons why this is so, but it's the world we live in. Second truism is that there are new vulnerabilities as we interconnect things. The more we connect things to each other, the more vulnerabilities in one thing affect other things. Josh mentioned the Mirai botnet and the Dynatax. So that was a vulnerability in digital video recorders and in webcams that allowed hackers to take down a domain name provider which caused service providers like Twitter and Reddit to go down. There's a story you can look up uh, by Matt Honig. He's an internet tech writer. And I think I get this right. It was a vulnerability in his Amazon account, allowed hackers to get into his Apple account, which allowed them to get into his Gmail account, which allowed them to delete his Twitter account. If you remember Target Corporation, they were hacked by someone stealing credentials from their HVAC contractor. And vulnerabilities like this are hard to fix because no one system might actually be at fault. You know, we've seen two systems that are secure that cause insecurities when they're put together. My truism three, more critical systems mean more empowered attackers. So attacks scale. The internet is a great machine for scaling technology, and it's also true for attackers. Right? More attackers can do more damage because of better technology. It's true for bank robbers. It's true for people copying music. It's true for everybody. Right? And the internet is naturally empowering. This allows attacks to scale to a degree impossible without computers and networks. Right? The Mirai botnet compromised potentially millions of devices. Right? So you know, when we think about these critical systems, they're getting bigger. Right? The, Internet of Th- the Internet of Things affects the world in a direct physical manner. Think of cars, medical devices, appliances, home thermostats, airplanes. So what was risks to data becomes real risks to life and property. And catastrophic risks become real. You know, we're talking about not taking over a car and crashing it, but taking over all the cars, shutting down all the power plants. These bulk attacks become possible because of the connections and the criticality of them. And fourth truism, the economics of Internet security don't trickle down to the Internet of Things. And this is important. Our computers and phones are as secure as they are for two reasons. One, there are teams of engineers at Microsoft, Apple, Google that are doing their best to design the stuff properly. And two, those teams are quick, 
to fix vulnerabilities when they're discovered in the real world. This isn't true for low-cost embedded systems like digital video recorders and home routers. They're at a much lower profit margin. They're often built offshore by third parties. They just don't have security teams that can do this. And even worse, many of those devices have no way to patch them. You might have a DVR that is vulnerable to an attack which allows it to be used for a botnet, but right now, the only way for you to update that DVR is to throw it away and buy a new one. And we regularly, we get security from the fact that we regularly replace our computers and phones every couple of years. And that's not true for embedded systems. We replace our DVRs, what, every five to 10 years, our refrigerators every 25 years, We replace our home thermostats approximately never. And the market can't fix this because neither the buyer nor the seller care. Both the buyer and the seller want cheap devices that work. So you might have bought a DVR that was used as part of that botnet. But if you think about it, you don't actually care. Your device was reasonably priced. It works well. The seller doesn't care. The device is reasonably priced and works well. These vulnerabilities used to attack third parties are economic externalities. They're not going to be fixed by the market. So government needs to get involved. But we have a practical problem. There really isn't a regulatory structure to tackle this at a systemic level. There's a fundamental mismatch between the way government works and the way technology works. Because government operates in silos and the internet operates horizontally. Today, there are apps on my phone that logs my health information, controls my energy use, and communicates with my car. That's a set of functions that crosses jurisdictions of at least four different government agencies. And I think we need to start thinking about a new regulatory agency. So what sort of regulations do we need? We need good security practices, testing, patching, secure defaults. We need data protection. Limits on collection, limits on use, support for responsible research, interoperability requirements, data portability, and some sort of smart liability regime. And what's interesting is because we're dealing in software, a U.S.-only regulation can improve cybersecurity for the world. Because for software, all the costs are in development. Once a company makes their system more secure, they're going to sell that secure system everywhere. It's like emission controls in cars in California. But here's the thing. Governments will get involved regardless of what we do. The risks are too great and the stakes are too high. Government is already involved in physical systems. And this real-world consequences will spur them into action. And nothing motivates the U.S. government like fear. By 2001, a small government Republican administration in Congress created the Department of Homeland Security 44 days after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. We get our first IoT disaster, and Congress will do something similar. So our choice here isn't government involvement or no government involvement. It's smart government involvement versus stupid government involvement. And that's why this meeting is important. We need to start thinking about this the pros and cons and the details. Will it stifle innovation? Probably. But honestly, that's what we do. When I was in Congress, I said the internet era of fun and games is over. 
this stuff can kill people now, and that makes it different. And I think this is all coming. The technology is coming, government involvement is coming, and it's coming faster than most people think. And we need to get ahead of it. Right? We need to start making choices. We need laws that are technologically invariant and address the economics and psychology of security. And really, and this is the hard part, we need to make moral and ethical and political decisions on how these systems should work. Because until now, we've given programmers a special right to code the world as they saw fit. We did that because it didn't matter. But as soon as the internet affects the world in a direct physical manner, it does matter. And we need to figure out the policy. So thanks for coming. I'm going to pay attention on the uh, live uh, webcam and have a good discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Bruce. I uh, hope you're still listening. And uh, at this point, I'd like to ask our panelists to come to their assigned seat on stage, and then we'll do some introductions. Eli? Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I was watching faces. There were some interesting reactions to some of that. I'm sure we'll, we'll dig in. Um, just so people aren't wondering who our, our, uh, our guests are, uh, and rather than me trying to describe the salient points for each of you, uh, I'll just uh, introduce you and then have you say a quick blurb about yourself and what you're, which discipline you're representing, uh, and then we'll get into some reactions to what, to what he did after we got on the line. Uh, so Eli Dorado. Uh, hi, I'm Eli. Uh, I direct the technology policy program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and I'm an economist by training. I, I told uh, Rob Graham that I was talking to an economist, and he said, no, you're not. I said, no, I, I swear to God I'm yeah. talking to an economist. Uh, all right, uh, Wendy Knox Everett. Hi, um, I'm Wendy. I am an attorney, brand new attorney, and I'm a fellow over at Swell Chen, um, and my firm thinks it's super important, it is. Um, but I tell you that everything I say here is my own opinion. It is not the firm's opinions. <laughs> Definitely not our firm's clients' opinions. All right. Uh, next, we have John. Yep. John Suen from Zurich Insurance. I am the business lead for all things cyber. So looking at cyber as a peril, not involved with any particular product, but cyber across all of the uh, products that Zurich uh, puts out. And again, I have to give the disclaimer as well. Anything that I discuss today is not a prospective coverage opinion on any claim made against any policy issued by Zurich Insurance Company. Um, but I do look forward to a, a good forward-looking discussion. With that out of the way, I think we can have that. All right, and Sasha. I'm Sasha Romanowski. I'm a <clears throat> policy researcher at the Rand Corporation. Uh, I'm also a policy advisor at the uh, Office of Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy. And I also need to make a disclaimer that the comments <laughs> I'm about to make are my own and not those of the DOD. All right, so this is a pretty big topic. It's a third rail topic. I was asked if I was wearing Kevlar today. Um, <laughs> and to be clear, I'm not necessarily advocating, but I think it's past time that we have substantive, meaningful, fresh conversations and push past our cliches, our dogma, our thought-terminating uh, talking points 
because I believe we're going to see some reaction to high consequence failures in IT, in the Internet of Things. I believed that it would be isolated to uh, safety critical systems. Uh, myself and my deputy, Bo Woods, we've been working in the private sector from the cybersecurity research community on public safety human life issues. So we were really focused on where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. We were focused on hackable vehicles, hackable medical equipment, healthcare delivery organizations, public transportation, industrial internet of things, not everything. Um, and we're gonna try our best to deliberately keep out the Mirai layer of the conversation until the second half of this discussion. Uh, because it's a little easier to talk about accountability and responsibility for safety critical regulated industries. Uh, it's still not easy, it's just easier. And I think the Mirai will bring an interesting dimension, the, this manifestation of security debt writ large and the externalities. Um, so we're gonna do our best to withhold that topic for a little while. Um, but it's our belief that uh, you, know, you can get liability introduced. In fact, mo many citizens believe we have software liability today. And I want to acknowledge a few pieces of prior history and prior art as a level set. I believe it was 30 years ago, and hopefully we're going to tweet out the link, um, but there was a case where the Therac 25 uh, machine in, in the clinical environment would administer radiation to cancer patients. And a glitch in that device, a software glitch in that device, uh, had the decimal point off by one or two places, depending on how the data was entered. So patients got 10 to 100 times the dose they were intended to. It killed a few people, it maimed others, and this is now uh, foundational educational material in design schools, in law schools, in computer science schools. It's been well covered and well researched. At the time, we had no statutory explanation for, soft, for harm caused by software. We also had a climate uh, in, in the in that in particular administration where we're in a fairly deregulatory phase. And there was a recognition that software and IT was an incredibly large and fastest growing part of our economy. And we had healthy reasons to not want to stifle innovation or hamstring the US in a global marketplace on such a fast growing part. And uh, there was no liability imposed on those fatalities by choice. Um, some of this, a lot of this is covered in a book written in 2007 which is very relevant to today's conversation called Geekonomics by David Rice, uh, The True Cost of Insecure Software. And he covered quite a few of these historical reasons we didn't have software liability, some of the legal and statutory reasons that we don't, um, and potentially some paths forward. And it, 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 I started rereading it to see how much it's held up since we met in 2007. One of the important things to realize is it was by choice we said, let's not stifle innovation. Let's give it a couple years. I think the, the term was five years. We'll revisit this in five years. It's been 30. And now software controls every aspect of our lives. Um, and if you add software to something, it's hackable. If you connect it to other things, it's exposed. So the Internet of Things is infinitely hackable. Uh, and it's, for many of the points that Bruce made on the Jumbotron, um, the economics and the incentives aren't sufficiently there. Now, when you say software liability, and I'm almost done some of these framing remarks, people, including my peers in the cybersecurity research arena who know how vulnerable these things are, start to have uh, convulsions. And there are many reasons, and I'd like you to think of things in terms of a scale. On one hand are the list of very valid reasons not to impose restrictions on innovation or software. 
Some of them are FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and baseless, and we should probably scrutinize and eliminate those. Some of them were true 30 years ago and are less true now, and we should prune those. And some of them are legitimate, valid concerns, and we should dust those off and make sure they're properly factored into our response. And yet, on the other side of the scales, let's make the list of reasons to introduce some sort of accountability or standard of care or definition of negligence or front-end compliance requirements, which makes me sh shiver. Um, at some point, and by some criteria, those the, the scale tips. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to decide when that happens. So that something like li liability could be introduced through the legislative branch, through statutory methods, highly unlikely. Very little appetite, lots of influence from Chamber of Commerce and software trade associations. Uh, lots of people like their low-cost devices. The more likely scenario discussed in the Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity, who's, the report of which is due to the President's desk tomorrow, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, a lot of discussion there, including commissioners like Herb Lynn, believe um, we're more likely to see this introduced through case law. There have been many attempts to introduce the idea, to make a tort. We're going to get into that with some of the lawyer talk. But if this is introduced abruptly, without careful consideration of the trade-offs between those two very valid list of reasons. If we're not careful, we could destroy the open source software community, which is, constitutes 80% of the code base in most commercial software. So you could basically destroy all software. Uh, if you place the liability in the wrong place or with the wrong, wrong scoping, you could have a very deleterious effect on innovation, on the economy, et cetera. Um, so if we believe, and this is what I'm going to offer for consideration of this group, if we believe an arbitrary case could create case law and introduce some form of liability, it is incumbent upon us to have the courage to have the conversation across various disciplines to shape and sculpt it so we have the right guidance recommendation, et cetera, when that moment comes. Now, I already pointed out that there are 25 case studies, great reading material, number two was this Geekonomics book written in 2007, has a lot of material. I want to see how much of it's still true and how much has changed. Uh, Rereading it, I was surprised to see even the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act comes into play here. Um, but also, um, there's uh, Andrea Matuition uh, is a law professor, and she's working on a legal journal piece, very large piece, very comprehensive, called The Internet of Bodies, I think is her working title. And she couldn't be here today, but she's likely to participate uh, in some way, shape, or form in this ongoing larger project um, where she's really looking at where does tort reform trump, statutory trump this, trump that. It's very complicated because in some cases, we actually do sort of have some level of liability, but it's incredibly context-specific, and it depends. So she's trying to do a really comprehensive analysis, at least from the legal perspective on that. And then I should also point out um, there was a very small talk at RSA 2014 between myself and Jake Coons, who was working at an insurance company uh, in his past and is, is at uh, um, his own company now. But we did a talk called, uh, Is It Time for Software Liability? Uh, the Worst Possible Idea Except for All Others, uh, where we did a very superficial analysis of that. And if people are interested in seeing that prior art as well, it's a precursor to this. Now, what we'd like to do sequentially, though, is I do think this is a pretty complicated matter. And one thing in a very speed roundy sort of way, I want to hear what people believe have been the strongest arguments or fears of what might happen negatively if we were to introduce software liability, just to clear the air. And if you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag, and perhaps Bo or Sam can bring me some of those. 
Um, but there are some, some legitimate concerns and some less legitimate concerns. We want to surface those beliefs. Uh, but then what we're going to do is really show that there's been a lot of innovation and legal arguments as to why not to do this. But I think one thing that's gotten very short shrift is what do the economists think about this? We keep hearing that re doing, regulating IT would be really bad for the economy. And yet, nearly every economist I've spoken to about this thinks there's tremendous waste and market failure and inefficiency in these markets. And, and I'd like to start looking at what would the economic impact of various different software liability rubrics look like with a real economist. And then it's going to be a little bit tail wagging the dog, um, but the insurance market will respond in kind to whatever choices manifest. So we're going to want to hear responses from some of these projected futures uh, from the insurance lens. And I almost didn't include Sasha. He's kind of like a polymath and really smart on a lot of topics. But we were on a panel together where he was really talking about maybe you could do some front end requirements or some compliance regime or some sort of regulatory things. And I innately was alerted to those, but you know we should put all options on the table because perhaps some of those are more beneficial once you factor uh, innovation, economics, law, and whatnot. So we want to also look at maybe the front end things. So let's do a speed round starting with Sasha. What's the top two or three cliches as to why you've heard it would be a terrible idea to make software developers accountable? Well, one of the arguments that keeps coming up is, is that it would stifle the innovation. Uh, and it may be true, it may not be true. I would like to see evidence. Uh, we see this argument with any kind of regulation, with data breach disclosures, where I've done a lot of my work, uh, and any kind of ex ante statutory regulation, compliance. Uh, it, it's typically that, that, yes, it will cycle innovation. It, it will prevent uh, firms from uh, using and collecting information in various ways, in novel ways, and creating new products in fun and interesting ways. Uh, I have yet to really see any evidence of the, stifle, the stifling of innovation in other areas. There may be some examples um, in, in other fields, and so there's, there's an opportunity there for uh, this to happen, but I have yet to see any evidence. That is, that is the big one for me. John? So from the insurance point of view, think about it. When you have liability and you have damages, there will be an insurance company there somewhere. That's, <laughs> that's kind of where we, where, we, where we play. So I think to the original point, it's, it's very important to be on the front end to help shape this. I think that's important for us to, uh, to, to look at. Um, you know, as far as uh, moving on individual products, it does also create business opportunities. Okay? So liability damages create new opportunities. It also has issues with regard to existing products that are out there for which premium has been collected and contracts are issued. So without getting too far into the weeds, it does get very complex from an insurance company point of view for the existing coverages or potential future coverages. The one point that I think is sometimes lost is that you know, insurance companies are good at behavioral modification. Mm -hmm. So if you think of the incentives that insurance can provide, to come up with better things, you know, seat belts, safety glass, steel-toed shoes. If you look at how it makes society better through that, I think there's a very valid place for insurance companies to be in this, uh, in this discussion. Mm, that's a great point. Um, so from a legal standpoint, this is a huge topic. I'll try to be very high level. I can't give you a huge, an entire law school class in one go. One of the main reasons we haven't had software product liability so far is the problems with standing. 
um, which are sort of predicated on the tort theory of pure economic loss, that without a physical harm to a person or some kind of property damage, courts are not willing to hear the cases and they get thrown out. Um, right now, a lot of software is under contract. Um, there's a very famous case called ProCD that sort of says that right now, because there is really no physical harm, we allow contract law to govern. And product liability is part of tort law, which is a different body of law. Um, and people also get very concerned because product liability is a strict liability. Um, most tort law looks at negligence. Um, and so there has to be some kind of fault or not necessarily misbehavior, but you know, lackadaisical sort of behavior um, on behalf of the person being held liable. But under strict product liability, um, it's liability without fault, and it is liability up and down the chain, the retailer, the manufacturer, the suppliers, and so forth, could all be sued um, and have to pay out. Um, and Eli and I were talking in the back about how Coase sort of says, well, you know, the cost will shift to the person who's, you know, most going to be able to handle that. Um, but that is something that makes people very concerned with software product liability. Start talking about strict liability, and it is very worrying. Yeah, so I'll just make a, a couple points. So the first one is that I am very much supportive of some sort of ex post remedy uh, to, to this problem. I, you know, I, I, I do get concerned about regulating the technology uh, industry. But if you're concerned about regulating the te technology industries, then it's only fair to say, well, when harms arise, we're going to deal with them after the fact. If you're not dealing with them before, beforehand, you have to deal with them after the fact. And so, um, so I like the idea of, of some sort of uh, liability for, for genuine harms that are caused uh, by software. And you know, we shouldn't exempt them just because they're caused by software. Um, and I don't know what the right standard of care is, or what, whether it's better enough in tort law, or, uh, or contracts law, or whatever. Um, but, but, I, but I think that it, you know, it, it does uh, make sense, you know, especially if you're concerned about regulation harming the pace of innovation uh, to, to sort of embrace uh, some sort of uh, ex post accountability, because that, that won't uh, create a barrier to, to innovating, to iterating, and to uh, ultimately you know, making the world awesome. Um, and then the other, the other point is that the, these externalities that, that we keep talking about, they're kind of a funny thing. Uh, uh, the famous uh, Ronald Coase paper from 1960 made the point that uh, externalities, you never get rid of them. There's always a harm that uh, if, if it, if I'm harming somebody externally, um, well, then to make me stop that is to harm me. So, so it's either you're harming one party. So the question is, who, how do you minimize the total value of the harm across the entire ecosystem? And, that, and that's ultimately the most efficient outcome. And that's what we're trying to get to uh, when we discuss this. And that, so, so we're trying to get to the most efficient result, the, the least harm. Make it uh, make the harm borne by the person who can bear it for the least cost, mm -hmm. and and that's and that's uh, and that's really the aim here. I think I, I would I would add something to that. Okay. Um, so there's this wonderful world of law and economics, and and often these discussions come up of, of efficient outcomes versus fair outcomes, and and economists certainly have the view and uh, of of reducing social cost uh, because they're interested in. Um, in, so in, in consumer welfare and, say, firm welfare. The consumers and firms, we want to m maximize the benefits for everyone and minimize the cost for everyone. Uh, 
and, and in the world of law and economics, we try and design liability rules or other kinds of regulatory or compliance rules in order to achieve this efficient outcome. And, and it's really a great design, and it's a very fun exercise to, to figure out how you can do that. And often the discussions are with strict liability and negligence liability um, and, and where you assign the rules and, and all that. Um, but the other side of that is, is to say that, look, the efficient outcome is not necessarily the fair outcome. So if we're talking data breaches or privacy violations, it may be efficient for the consumer to take action, for them to bear the risk, for them to patch their systems, uh, for them to uh, not share their data. Um, but maybe that's not the fair outcome because it's the firm who really should be doing the protecting the information uh, in all kinds of ways. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think it's, I think it's right on. I'm just pointing out that. We, it's a more complex dynamic that we often have, and it's often the tension often comes up is is, is efficiency versus fairness. And, and if I could just jump in on that, because from an insurance company point of view, take out insurance company and just think society, because overall we have it coming and going in, in any different way, no matter how you slice this. If you think about reducing the overall risk, you know, to to the economy, to every everyone involved. That's beneficial from an insurance company point of view and also leads to predictability of starting to look at where this should be born you know, within, the, within the, uh, the economics of insurance. Because also remember for insurance companies, it's not about just today, it's building a sustainable, um, a sustainable framework so that you're able to do this over a longer period of time. So agree. Um. We're going to get to some of those topics in a second. I did ask the Twitters, you know, the internet hate machine, um, what they thought. And one of the interesting ones is a blog post written in 2005 by Pete Lindstrom in response to Bruce Schneier, if Bruce is still listening. I guess Howard Schmidt and Bruce had written some column in Wired, for example. Uh, and this is, again, 2005, November 2nd, 2005. Um, and without, you know, critiquing these, uh, software liability is unenforceable. It will destroy innovation. It will destroy open source. Open source one comes up quite a bit. I think I have a finesse for preventing that. Um, it will create, it'll double prices of software. Uh, it'll force lock-in to certain vendors, and it won't work, things like that. Um, so there's, and this is from the cybersecurity community. Um, we've heard similar arguments from software providers or, or uh, chamber of commerce that the margins are so low. Uh, one of the things that Jake and I looked at was all the arguments against software liability in our RSA talk, and then we compared them to similar arguments for uh, kitchen sanitation codes in commercial restaurants. For And we had another column for what the automotive industry said when Ralph Nader wrote on Unsafe and Unspeed, that it would destroy innovation, it would kill the terrible margins, we wouldn't have car industry anymore. And we certainly, when it comes to public safety and highly regulated interests that taxpayers expect from the government, um, we have done these things. They didn't destroy those industries. We still have delicious restaurants and, and uh, affordable and, and you know, vibrant cars. They even differentiate on some of their safety features now. Um, so it's not to say that we can equally dismiss them, nor to compare that cars are identical to software. But many of these arguments were made before. And what I want to do is push past belief into analysis. Um, we're not going to get it all done in a very short panel here. But one thing I should probably mention is this is meant to launch a long, thorough project. We've identified Randy Sabet, 
uh, is one of the, the key lawyers in this space. He was a crypto engineer at NSA, he's been doing cybersecurity law, was a consultant on this book back in 2007. Um, we want to work um, with insurers, we want to work um, with cybersecurity minds, and we want to work um, with lawyers and legal uh, folks and economists uh, in the longer term project. These folks were generous enough to participate in today's initial seed discussion, but we intend to do this across the next several months to make sure we do this thoughtful, planful analysis and we look at the ripple effects on each other's disciplines so we can present a rubric or few and do comparative analysis on them. Um, we'd like to engage the Chamber of Commerce. We'd like to engage the software industry. We'd like to engage the, the customers of these. And this is where I'll pivot before handing back to Sasha. Um, I was with a lot of bankers. And bankers are hacked more than anybody. And one of the things the CIOs of all the banks did is they went to DHS about a year and a half, two years ago. And they said, we can no longer size or manage our third party IT risk. It's almost a too big to fail compound derivatives thing. They have no idea how much risk they're inheriting from their third-party IT supply chain. And they thought that this was a material risk to financial services, which is a material risk to the economy and to national security. And one of the things, I'm going to try to get this almost verbatim without attributing it. He said, so wait a second. Bless you. He said, so wait a second. And he was really mad at one particular software vendor in particular who I shall not name. But he said, so wait. You make a risk decision of which vulnerabilities are acceptable to pass on to me in my product, knowing nothing about my operational environment, my budget, or my risks. So you make a decision on my behalf without my participation on what's acceptable. Number two, I have to buy security products and hire security staff to shield those vulnerabilities that you made on my behalf. Number three, I still get compromised, so I pay the damages from the vulnerabilities you passed on to me that I had to shield and failed to shield. And now in banking, I'm forced to buy insurance to cover the risk that you passed on to me. And when I have the nerve, this is the last part, when I have the nerve to ask you to be transparent about which vulnerabilities you've passed on to me, you tell me it's none of my business. How is this a fair relationship? So whether it's a fairness thing or a market efficiency thing, um, there comes a point where even through um, buyer rage in these highly affected industries, uh, it's just not equitable anymore. And to quote uh, Greg Rattray, he was one of the testimonies in the Presidential Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity, which comes out tomorrow. In part of his testimony from J.P. Morgan Chase, he said, we have 2,000 full-time security staff members on budget. We have a $600 million security budget. And we're still breached routinely. And when you look at the overwhelming majority of these, they're known vulnerabilities, many years old known vulnerabilities in their commercial products that they didn't know they were inheriting, couldn't defend against, and were probably avoidable at manufacturing, at least a large chunk of them. So this, to me, seems like an opportunity to look at incentives, because these aren't exotic zero-day attacks from a nation state. These are sometimes 10-plus-year-old known defects with freely available, less vulnerable alternatives to them. And when we talk about software liability, we don't want to have this macro-level conversation. How we define scope, what you're liable for, for how long, where the division of labor and shared responsibility is between the manufacturers, the open source libraries, the consumers, the operators. Those things ultimately matter. And when we have this adult conversation over the course of now and the next few months, we should have concrete, bounded rubrics that we analyze for what's the most economic, what's the most uh, expedient in legal terms, how would insurance react to these rubrics, et cetera. 
So from that, I will shift to Sasha, because people are using terms like X this and pre that, and can you please define what our options are, including the regulatory front end things? If we don't like liability, what are our alternatives? Sure. So the, the way I see the world in terms of policy interventions is, is ex post and ex ante, and somewhere in the middle, we'll call it disclosure. So the ex ante compliance regulations um, are really about preventing the harm from occurring in the first place. Uh, the ex post is we accept the risks, we're going to let the accidents happen, but we're going to create a liability regime uh, where people can be made whole if they can demonstrate you know, certain, certain things. Uh, and then in the middle of that is something like information disclosure. So a lot of my work has been is focused around security breach notification laws and, no, and the notion that um, something bad has happened, like a data breach, and you as a consumer may be affected, you may be harmed, but we're going we're gonna to let you know about this. And so this is the firm um, just disclosing this information. And so it, the notion is that it does two things. It empowers the consumer to take action to mitigate, reduce any losses that they might occur. That's a good thing. It empowers the consumer. And by doing that, forces the firm, ostensibly, it forces the firm to internalize any costs that um, they may impose on others, these externalities that you hear about. And so in doing so, it raises the cost of, of the risky behavior by the firms, causes them to increase their security protections, and hopefully avoid the future breaches. So ex ante, ex post, and disclosure somewhere in the middle. Um, and there's a wonderful world, again, a law and econ world, that talks about the benefits and consequences of each one of these. And, and I'll give you a few examples. So, Ex ante regulation is very good if the harms are dispersed across many people, thousands of people, millions of people. So you can think of polluting companies. Um, any harm that any individual suffers, you can't really attribute to a particular plant. It's, it's you know, we know that it's because of all of these firms in a given industry, but we can't really make any specific attribution. Uh, and, and many people are affected. So if the harms are very scattered across, if the injurer is not well known, then regulation, ex ante regulation, can be very useful. Um, and all, but also, uh, on the flip side, if the harms are catastrophic, so you think of uh, nuclear disasters, we just don't want that to happen, so we're going to impose very strict uh, regulations, codes, standards beforehand in order to prevent that bad thing from happening. Ex post liability, on the other hand, uh, is very useful when the harm is concrete. So when there's, there's um, injury in fact, when it's physical, when it's property damage, and when the injurer is, is well known. And so this is one of the reasons that breach um, litigation, privacy lawsuits, um, as, as Wendy was saying, doesn't, doesn't really often go very far because of lack of standing. Because look, if I'm alleging that the firm, if the best I can do is allege that a firm increase my risk of future identity theft, something, something, how is a court going to make me whole? Really, what can they do? And you, know, you can think of the same kind of arguments with software liability. If really all it did was cause my computer to run funky for a few hours, what, what is the legal system going to do for that? Um, and uh, with the information disclosure, you know, it's, it works well under some situations. Um, uh, there's been lots of discussion over a decade or so of, of how well it works or doesn't work in terms of data breaches and, and privacy violations, that kind of thing. In terms of 
um, software liability. It's sort of unclear how this, you know, how a disclosure uh, would help people. Maybe it's a disclosure of here are the vulnerabilities that exist in our product, buyer beware. Mm -hmm. And I think to a large extent that exists. Um, I think it's true that software vendors are um, relatively proactive in, in fixing the vulnerabilities and providing patches to the community. They don't really want to, they have no interest in, in having very vulnerable code out there within reason. Um, and there's certainly lots of efforts to create databases of, of vulnerabilities uh, to notify people in appropriate ways. Um, so that could be opportunities. And there are lots of other policy interventions that may help. Uh, you've often heard of nudging, you've heard of gamification, their reputation systems, grand challenges, bug bounties, vulnerability disclosure programs, lots of these kind of new tools uh, that I think different organizations are playing with in order to help on the, on the defensive side of protecting systems both for, for consumers and to incentivize firms for, for improving their practices. Now, um, we're going to take questions to start thinking of them in, a, in about 10 minutes. I'm going to try to get through some pretty big topics really quickly, if we can. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit allergic to front-end compliance and regimes for IT. Um, I spent a good couple of years um, assaulting the PCI data security standard, the payment card industry data security standard. Um, very heavy, very expensive front-end, very prescriptive and brittle set of requirements for uh, merchants and retailers. And what I noticed was they were all doing this very expensive thing and they were all being breached anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of reasons. I actually compared it to the No Child Left Behind Act for information security, I think. Um, but if you look at um, those, there's a general belief that um, if you're too prescriptive and brittle, um, it's obsolete by the time the ink is dry. Uh, technology moves pretty quick, and we don't even understand some of the technological things we're going to have five years from now. Um, but also, um, if you're too general, there's too much room for interpretation uh, in gaming. So I had been writing that off, but perhaps when we're going to do this fair, thoughtful analysis, we should include some of those levers uh, in this new pass. Um, but shifting to some of the economics, we've heard um, if you, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I don't even play one on TV. Uh, but one of the arguments we tried to make is that markets want to be efficient. And as from a hacker eye view, we said, look, it seems like markets tend to fix themselves with supply and demand when you have an informed agent able to make informed decisions in a, uh, amongst products in the marketplace. Where we saw things break down were two, two specific places. Information asymmetry, where there's a difference in available information between the buyers and the sellers which could lead to suboptimal outcomes. And to me, the cure was simple. When you have that problem, invest or incentivize the revelation of more information. So we used to have lemon laws for cars, for used cars, then we introduced Carfax, and now we know so much, we've dampened that gap, and we have a more efficient connection of supply and demand. The rarer example, um, but pretty profound problem, is the tragedy of the commons, or the externalities things, where each participant does act in their own self-interest and we're all harmed anyhow, or, or passing risks on to other folks. So one of the things we believed, if you go to that model of you're passing stuff, I have to buy security, I have to buy insurance, I get breached anyhow, is if you have a piece of software that's $100, sticker price, and it costs me $50 to secure it, and I pay another $50 because I failed to secure it, and I have to buy insurance for another 25 the true cost is not $100. 
And if you magnify that to all the customers of that Acme software company, that's the, the market, right? Um, so what, one of the things we believed is if you could identify the true cost and place the cost burden on the least cost of order, you might get the price to $110 or $120, but it's still better for the system. Um, are, am I butchering economics here? How would you augment that? In well, so, so I think that your core point, right, which is that markets want to be efficient, right? Markets, markets strive, you know, not to anthrop they hate it when you anthropomorphize them, but um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, but, That's but, but they do, yeah. They they they, they do work to, uh, to to have have efficiency. Now there, are, I think there's a big difference between a well-functioning market and a poorly functioning market. So I would actually argue that for uh, software vulnerabilities in cars, um, we kind of already have liability uh, for for the bugs. So if there's a bug in my car and a hacker takes over and I uh, and I run somebody over and I kill them, some that that person's family is going to get compensated uh, either by, if not by, me and my insurance company, um, by the manufacturer. And and maybe we still need to sort out who that is. But in an economic sense, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. um, because we already have the insurance company. So what we're ultimately deciding when we decide who bears liability is, is the car going to be a little bit less expensive and the insurance policy a little more expensive? Or is the car going to be a little more well, expensive? And the determining how much risk to your product liability is great for the risk utility sort of analysis, where it's not really a strict liability. You're sort mm -hmm. of like, you can buy knives, but we no longer have lawn darts on the market. Right. Like that's a really good way to see how product liability helps you determine mm -hmm. your risk. And so, so then, but what happens when you get into, um, like you brought up the example of medical equipment right. at hospitals? Does anybody think hospitals are a well-functioning market? Right? Like, like, like that is uh, that's much more challenging, I think, um, because because there there aren't as many market forces at play, mm -hmm. uh, and it's not not always going to push it towards efficiency. So. So I think you know, try yes, leverage the market as much as possible, and then be aware uh, of, of when when markets aren't aren't free to operate. Yeah, and if we pull the, the domino or pull the thread and watch the sweater unravel, or you knock over the domino, we believe exactly what you said is going to happen. We'll start to have some case law emerge. Mm -hmm. There will be payouts. Someone will pay. The insurance premiums will be adjusted based on how much and how big the payouts are, and if they're over or undercharging. There will, this will matriculate. The question is, can we be intelligent and thoughtful and get some advanced thinking on this? Um, so when you go to insure a car right now, it's a two-door sports car, uh, you know, a red one. You know, that's fact. These things are factored into how dangerous that that car is. Um, do we yet have an analysis of does the auto manufacturer have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program? Well, are they patchable? Uh, do they do source code review? Do they, how many known vulnerabilities are in there? Have those factored in yet? because they ultimately may need to. And I think this is where I sort of push back a little on the on the on the ex or the uh, the front end regulatory side because you know I, I do think that you know, right now there's not enough data right, right. to do the risk selection. And remember insurance is about risk selection and then pricing for that risk. And there's not enough data around what actually are the causes of the, these breaches, whether that would be the proximate cause was the negligence in manufacturing the software, all the, the liability issues uh, in there. So that is, that is problematic um, for insurance companies because, again, it's, it's part of the market. So we're looking at risk. We're looking at the risk of all our insureds. And um, there's not enough data at, at this point. That's why we are very supportive of you know, the, the efforts to collect breach data 
um, so that we have something you know, with our, our actuaries and others to sort of look at what the total cost of that risk is. The other part I will say without getting too far into the weeds is you know, the, the, the public policy aspects of insurance, remember, we do pay for the damages. So we will make sure on the front end that that person who was hurt in that car accident is compensated fairly and justly right away. Mm -hmm. the, what you may not understand, though, is also then insurance companies have this thing called subrogation, right? So ultimately, if we pay out, you know, to hurt for somebody who's been hurt in an auto accident, that auto accident was caused by the defective software that was provided by one of the suppliers. Insurance company will turn around and sue that that in, that uh, supplier um, for for negligence or products or you know contract or whatever we decide to do to tr to try to recoup that. So, insurance remember also just acts as a pass through to help society and help those who are injured on the front end. So there's sort of that aspect to it. I should take you on the road. You're, you're teeing up my questions to Wendy perfectly. Okay. So. It's a really complicated thing. We're definitely not going to get into all of it right now. But uh, there's a chapter in David's book that says you couldn't sue us even if you wanted to. <laughs> and essentially, it's talking about some confluence of um, no case law yet, um, no standing if, until there's actual harm, um, end user license agreements, or the fact that you're in a contract law scenario where it's just very lopsided and you really can't not click the EULA or the I agree. Um, and even, I didn't remember this until I reread it, but it sounds like in 2001 they amended the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. I didn't think I could hate this thing anymore uh, to, to insulate software manufacturers against harm. Um, so what are, if, if they go to sue the software manufacturer, the harming card, and let's take the Jeep yeah. Grand Cherokee that, that Chris and Charlie hacked, if that harming Carmen software had hurt someone, yeah. Would Chrysler be sued? Would uh, Harman Kardon? And would it even stand up, or do these immunities like CFA? At that point, like it CFA? probably would, yeah. Yeah. yes. Um, I had sent Josh a case that was sort of came from uh, Charlie's hack of the Jeep. Um, and the case ended up getting thrown out of uh, the court because they said there was no standing, there was no injury in fact. It was the um, Prius, right? The Toyota Prius hack? Yeah, it was a Toyota yeah. versus Cahan case. Um, and so basically, the Constitution says that you need to have essentially you know, injury in fact, and it has to be a harm that is re redressable by the courts. And the judge in this case said, well, there's a possibility you could be hacked, but you are not hacked. And the amorphous threat of some future non-physical harm is not enough for the court to address right now. But um, in this instance where someone was run over by a car, lost a leg, had you know, some broken bones or something, that is a physical harm. Um, you've now gotten past the tort pure economic loss um, thing. And pure economic loss is not 100% of a barrier. Um, there was the People's Express case in Newark, um, and I believe the 1970s, where they said the harm was so predictable that they allowed it. It's just, it's a, pure economic loss is essentially a way of saying that tort law prefers to be addressing physical, actual harms that have already occurred so we can figure out what the damages are and so forth. And so, yeah, it is a shift. And this is one of the reasons why IoT makes people think about software liability because we now have software. Instead of being locked inside desktop computers, it's now out in devices that could physically interact with us and possibly harm us. Mm. Now, we knew that this was going to be very superficial skim of a few of these disciplines, but you can, I hope you can already start to see how these will create chemical reactions between each other depending on which paths we end up taking. Um, as we shift the question, uh, to question and answer, it looks like we did not get to Mirai botnets, but we may in Q&A. Um, 
I'd like to offer up something a little bit more concrete. One of the intents of this project is to have maybe a few comparative rubrics of how you might do this. Um, some of my research um, from the private sector, from CMU, made its way into a few places about two years ago. Um, I basically came up with a trio for transparency. The idea that um, one way we might be able to fix this through free market force is to dampen the information asymmetry. And I essentially said if you could require a software bill of materials, an ingredients list for the software you're buying, you'd know which parts were in it and which versions were in it. So if you had an open SSL heart bleed uh, you know, vulnerability flaw the day you're buying it, you're like, I don't want to buy that thing. They haven't fixed that in three years. So the transparency of knowing how much risk you're assuming, back to the bank's point. Uh, number two of this trio was uh, you shouldn't really be able to sell products with known vulnerabilities in them uh, without uh, disclosing them or um, creating some sort of mitigation. Um, so they should be you know, free of known defects. Just like you could not sell a car with a known bad version of a Takata airbag, you shouldn't sell a car, or a, a, a car with a known bad OpenSSL version. And then number three, because vulnerabilities happen, your, your goods should be patchable, should be capable of being updated. And one of the reasons the Mirai botnet is so devastating is these things can't be updated in a lot of cases. You gotta throw them away. So again, tell your, you know, you know, a list of ingredients, um, no known defects and patchable. And I kind of saw this as maybe a hedge or a way to immunize yourself against liability. Maybe the reasonableness standard is tell them what's in it, shouldn't be known defective, and it should be capable of being updated. And were this to happen, you're not responsible for a zero-day attack. You're not responsible if your customers failed to apply the patch that you, you gave them. And this might be a way to insulate the total risk to the software industry were software liability introduced. And I'd like you to maybe just chew on that you know, tomorrow for the next week as one of these scenarios we may look at. And then we'll pull the thread to see what would the impact on the economy be, cost of goods, barriers to entry, what would the legal interpretation of that kind of standard of care look like, how might we price insurance premiums that way or respond. And those are the kind of things we want to do with this project. And then we'll have a bunch of options we can directly compare for their merits. And this notion was that if we self-regulate by imposing this transparency idea. It made its way into a bill in Congress called the Cyber Supply Chain Management and Transparency Act of 2014. The Financial Services ISAC said, hey, we, we inherit a lot of software. They wrote an XML schema for how they want to receive the bill of materials, and they can use their collective purchasing power. So the FSISAC put out guidelines. Cyber uh, Underwriters Laboratories likes this, and they put it in their cyber uh, assurance program that if you want to get a medical device or industrial control system, you must provide this bill of materials, be patchable, et cetera. So we're seeing slow adoption on these, but it's unlikely to happen on these smaller um, devices that are finding their way into large botnets. But instead of saying all liability, no liability, what we want to do is start to look at this kind of thing and look at other case law where who gets sued? Is it the open source developer? Because then no one will ever do open source development again. Or do you take a page out of automotive where in 1916, McPherson versus Buick, they determined that the wheels from Firestone were not to, um, held to blame. It was the final goods assembler was in the best position to avoid bad parts and suppliers. So we have rubrics we could use if we can get past our nausea, push through the thought terminating cliches. We might be able to come up with something which is a, a reasonable expectation on the part of the producers of software with a very high return on uh, risk reduction. Because ultimately, if we can only build a, buy a 10-foot stepladder for our security program, and we're starting eight feet in the hole with these known vulnerabilities in the products, um, perhaps that's why 100 
of the Fortune 100 have had a loss of intellectual property or trade secrets in the last two years. Perhaps that's why every PCI merchant that was compliant was compromised anyhow. And perhaps that's why we're starting to see hospitals shut down and deny patient care, like Hollywood Presbyterian, or the three that happened in the UK just three weeks ago, because of avoidable infections of ransomware on known vulnerabilities in something like JBoss. So as these harms manifest, I, I think we're going to need to have plan A, B, and C and be able to articulate the trade-offs on these, lest we have unintended consequences. So with that, I'm going to open to questions both from the internet and from the room. Who wants to go first? I got you. <coughs> microphone. Thank you. I'd like to ask a pre-cyber question. Because if you look at a conventional mechanical door lock, they are unbelievably easy to pick with very simple tools. Uh, and bad actors can easily get in. What's the liability situation on those? And did, could that apply to software vulnerabilities? So, I don't know. <laughs> I can give you the general answer. Um, so landlords do have some liability to give safe premises. But if there's an intervening criminal act, usually the intervening criminal act severs liability. However, if the person who maintains the premises um, and I'm doing such a high overview, you could go hours on this stuff. Um, if, if you essentially create such a risky situation that it's obvious that anybody could walk along um, and push that door open and cause harm, then the liability shifts back onto the landlord or so forth. Um, it could, I mean, it's very, again, there's the um, standing problem, pure economic loss right now. If you get hacked, it's mostly a intangible sort of harm. Yeah, this is, I'm if we had more time, this is one of the ones I expected to come up because one of the things that the cybersecurity lawyers come to is that the presence of, a, of an adversary, of a malicious actor, is material to this discussion, and it is. But one of the ways that's materializing in some of these legal discussions and with the government is the notion of hazards um, or hazardous environments. So if you're in, you know, for the medical world, for example, slightly orthogonal, um, a device that's meant to operate in water or near water has to anticipate that hazard. And if they don't, they're going to get recalled um, or they're not going to get approved in the first place. So an expectation of a safe, benevolent internet is, is really poor judgment. So there's going to be some sort of cut line, we believe, in this project where we determine a base level of, of malicious actor activity or even autonom autonomous uh, malicious code. And that's going to be one of the the, the wrinkles in this in this case. It's one of the many wrinkles in this case. So I might add also, I mean, door locks are a great example because uh, we, uh, of, of efficient insecurity, right? We don't want uh, perfectly efficient or perfectly unbreakable door locks because they would be too expensive to manufacture. And so we, we choose uh, to bear that risk uh, when, we, when we buy the lock, right? And, and yeah. so I think as long as there's not, um, as long as there's not uh, you know, a, a misleading sort of representation of the, you know, this lock is, yeah. is perfectly secure, I think it's efficient to allow that insecurity to exist and, and, and not to hold the manufacturer of the lock. And, and that's uh, where insurance companies can also yeah. incent behavior. So yeah. they say, you will reduce your homeowner's premium if you have a double deadbolt or you know, right. don't have, mm -hmm. have a single on the inside so you can get out in case of a fire. Or an so alarm there are, system. Yeah. There, are best, there are best practices associated with that. The right. trick with cyber, though, is knowing what those characteristics are. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. And we have right. to define the physics here and the boundaries, and that's going to be part of this project. Um, I think I saw you next. Keep your hands up or fingers up if you've been up. 
Um, I, I'm a political scientist, and I think the thing that strikes me uh, that's missing from the discussion is, um, you know, there's this magical thought that some harm will come to uh, people using Internet of Things, and it will cause a reaction. Um, but there are forces that are not regulated and have no liability who will be actively working against yeah, any reaction. And I um, am looking for what economic interests are for liability. Yeah. Uh, and, and because without, without organized effort that is adequately uh, resourced, I, I think that whatever happens, there's a good chance, you know, this magical event, um, <clears throat> that there will be no liability. Well, and that's in, fa in point of fact, that's what happened with the Theric. 25 people say, well, when someone dies, we'll have liability. We had people die. We demonstrably had people die, and we chose not to at the time. Um, I, I guess I want to flip it to you a little bit for a short answer. Um, sure. But this is one of the reasons why I don't think it'll come through statutory. I think it's going to come through case law. Um, and I don't think yeah. we're going to have much choice. And maybe weave in the Cosi's theorem thing, too. Well, no, yeah. that, no that, that was exactly the point yeah. I was going to make, is that um, I don't think the courts are that corrupt. Right, like so. So you can maybe you can argue like the political process is, is like really corrupt, but you know I think think case law does a pretty good job of of actually uh, you know taking taking people's you know when there is tangible harm demonstrated by someone who is suing, uh, the courts take that seriously. So um, and and you can't lobby the court, right? So it's a, a lot of moneyed interests can't get involved and and you know. Uh, take the take the judge out to a nice dinner Back and say we, we really we really think you should uh, rule this way. That's not I I, I don't think that's yeah. happening. And one thing we fear um, is that if if they say hey the this developer introduced this flaw in OpenSSL at 4 a.m. on New Year's Day like open like the Heartbleed flaw, and they go sue the developer, no one's ever going to contribute to an open source thing again. So how we aim and where we place and how we scope and limit that liability matters a lot. Um, and what Cosi's theorem says, it doesn't matter where you put it, it'll figure itself out eventually, but you want to do it, put it in the right place or what? Cosi's is really complicated. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. Look up yeah, Cosi's no. theorem. <laughs> um, I think I saw you next, sir. A point that was raised at the beginning about uh, if the U.S. regulates, it's a global good. Um, oh, by, by Bruce. Uh, yes, uh, but, but then it kind of going back to the fact that everything is inter interconnected through the Internet of Things, and so we can regulate, but if someone else isn't regulating, it can still affect our systems. Yeah. And I was just wondering if you could talk about uh, the state of international discussion uh, on regulation of these issues. So I'm going to be very brief and see if anyone wants to tag team. Um, one of the fights I had with Rob Graham, um, very vocal on this, and, and I respect him a lot. Um, when the Mirai botnet hit, I said, uh-oh, I wanted to just focus on safety critical. Now we actually have to care about all those low-end devices. One of his pushbacks, and I'm going to try to do fidelity here, is that if the US regulates US devices or even devices sold into the US, there still be low-end stuff sold to some other country, and we're still sharing one internet, so we're still going to get DDoS from those, right? And you know, I think he makes some arguments. I'm going to make two rebuttals that I've made to him really quickly. One is. Um, those countries are also suffering from some of the externalities here. So they have a shared interest, and we have a very entangled and shared supply chain of who invents and who manufactures these things. And 
the, the interruption of commerce and available resources will be fairly shared due to that mutual assured dependence. And number two is I hadn't really talked to Bruce yet, and I think Bruce makes a good point. It, a manufacturer who decides not to sell into the US or to make a separate product for US and not US, it just doesn't seem to work that way. So we already see this with the, the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, there are US regulations for US consumption of devices, but those manufacturers sell globally, and all of the countries get better there. So by being a bulk purchaser, it's not the only answer, but it's part of the answer. And I think instead of just assuming we know the answer, we want to use this project to, to really figure that out. In fact, right before this, we met with some of the folks from China on mutually, mutual dependence and exposure that's in our interest to try to fix. Um, I think I saw you next. I just I have to disagree with you here, Josh, because there was just an article in the Post the other day talking about how cars are manufactured to very different standards depending on their markets. And you can have the same model yeah, cars of car, are, have yeah, a yeah. five-star crash test in the U.S. and a zero-star in Mexico. So Yeah, car, I, cars absolutely are. You're right. Right. So I just I, I see that happening in, in other avenues because cars have been such a big focus of all the positive things we can do. If that market is still working in that way, I, I have to disagree on that point. But you can see there's a business choice that do I want to sell to a very large U.S. market or not? Um, yeah, but yeah. but again, like that's a case where they're like, we'll sell to the U.S. market, we'll make the changes, but the entire rest of the world still gets the zero star. Yeah, the reason I held off on the Mirai stuff is that one's a much harder problem to solve. Um, <laughs> and we're going to have to look at that, too. It has complicated things. I, th I think I saw you next, sir. So Bruce Schneier made a point that you can have two systems that are reasonably secure, yeah. and then when they come together, they are now not secure. Yes. So... Um, when we get to the Internet of Things, when we go from tens to hundreds of billions to trillions of things and, and a wide variety of software, doesn't that make this liability thing even more complicated? Yeah, I, th I think it does. And, and the principle he was referring to, if you want to look it up, is called security is not composable. Take secure thing A, secure thing B, put them together, they may not be secure. There's seams and cracks. But an important corollary to that is you can't take an insecure thing, you combine it with anything and have it come out secure. Mm -hmm. Um, and what and this is specifically important when you look at like vehicle to vehicle protocol, vehicle to infrastructure protocol. They've kind of gone straight to making that protocol secure instead of realizing that no individual car participating in that network is, is trustworthy at all. Um, so in the Internet of Things, it's going to get complicated. And his complexity point, I believe, is point number one. And it's, it's a big deal. Um, that said, and I want to call out to a project started by U.S. Commerce Department and NTIA, there may be some front-end minimum hygiene things that could really help here. One of the projects they just started in Texas was a voluntary standard for patching for IoT. So one of the biggest challenges here isn't that there's a hard-coded password or default mm -hmm. password or that there's a known vulnerability in Bash or OpenSSL. It's that some of these cannot be patched. So next time I have to buy a home router and I go to Best Buy or something, I'd love to see on the label, this product is patchable and we commit to patching it for five years. This one's not patchable. You know, if they're equally priced, equally functioned, I'm going to steer to one I can maintain for my own personal risk choice that doesn't solve the Mirai botnet externalities that my neighbor's choices can still hurt me. Um, but this may be a part of the solution. And since the government tends to prefer self-regulatory, I think we should use, if, if I were giving advice to the Chamber of Commerce, software trade associations, software manufacturers, I would say proactively, self and voluntarily, transparency the bejesus out of your products to make the argument that give us a chance to show how much harm and risk we can reduce by, adding, by dampening the information asymmetry, and then maybe we won't need some form of liability. 
But in, the answer is no longer none of the above. We're going to have to choose which vegetable we want to eat. There's also, oh, oh if I could on. give yeah. a little bit of a legal answer on some of this. Um, so product liability is a fairly complicated law. There is a concept of design defect. It's one of the three major types. Um, and one mm. of the big things you look at in the design defect case is, is there a reasonable alternative design? You take um, the product as it went onto the market and ask, well, should they have done something smarter? Like right now, if there's a car on the market without an airbag, you might say a reasonable alternative design might be to put the airbag in. And you look at the cost of how much it would have been to put the safety device or the other design in. Um, is it changing the product so much that it becomes a different product category and so forth? And there's a lot of fairly sophisticated risk and economic analysis that goes into that kind of thing. So if the product is unsafe only in combination with some other product on the market, you might say that there is, they should not necessarily have known about that and the reasonable alternative design um, you know, was not apparent to them. And so therefore, you would not find liability in that instance. Um, I'm going to probably go to you, um, Bo and Sam. If there is one on the internet, please just read it. Um. Sorry, me now. Yeah. Um, my question is: um, so, from the perspective of a of a of a software provider, how do you then sort of lessen your liability, escape uh, your liability? So, what is it that you have to do so that you are not liable? And how how are you going to be liable? Uh, how much are you going to be liable? So, you know, what is going to be the hold on, not quite on. What's going to be the financial extent of your liability, and how do you make sure or reasonably sure that you're that that you're that you're not liable? Because the way that we look at at, at software assurance, at developing more secure code, is we know there's a whole bunch of things that we do that tend to make software code more secure, have less vulnerabilities, etc. But it's not like a oh going to be a 45% reduction or whatever. I mean, I think of, of my health insurance or my life insurance. They tell me, well, if you smoke, it's X dollars more. Because we know you're very, you're, the, the likelihood that you will have cancer, you'll cost us $150,000 or whatever. I just, I'm just not seeing that in software development. So isn't that a fairly considerable sort of thing that we need to figure out? I think uh, the gentleman from the insurance company talked about sort of, you know, how do you actualize all of this. Can you, can you sort of expand on, on this issue? So for software companies, there are, you know, part of this is, from the insurance perspective, people talk about cyber insurance, like there's a thing. Hmm. And there really isn't cyber insurance. We use that as a colloquialism, okay? There is security and privacy insurance that covers PI, PHI, okay? Uh, there is, when I ran the E&O group back in the 90s, we started on tech E&O for software manufacturers. It's the great, it's the great grandfather of the, the policies now. It's tech E&O to cover the software liability, the hardware liability, what software manufacturers. There is general liability that would cover your products. I mean, there, there's all sorts of, of different uh, insurance products that might be affected by your, the software manufacturer's overall risk profile. I will tell you generally in underwriting and risk selection, you look at their understanding of the risk. You know, the best practices. We insurance companies hire a lot of risk engineers to look at, you know, how you make your, your process. Is it is it better? And, and over and overall, work through insurance brokers, work through insurance, um, you know, uh, uh, schemes, um, and and look at your overall total risk. 
right? So the enterprise risk management aspect to this you know, is the first part. Then you start to see whether insurance would be appropriate for that on a risk transfer basis or on some other method. But you have to you really start to look at your overall risk profile associated with the manufacture of that software. Part of the answer is it's going to depend on yeah. how we shape and sculpt our rubrics. And that's why we want to do the impact and cascading analysis of if you chose a due care standard, if you chose, an, uh, what is it, what's the front end one again? Ex-ante. Ex-ante ex method. You know, there is discussion for enterprises, since all the risk right now is borne by the operators of IT, that if you did NIST cybersecurity framework, you'd get safe harbor, right? Or if you did with the CISA Act, right, the, the, the Computer Information Sharing Act, if we did this, would we have some sort of safe harbor on XYZ? So there can be some horse trading here as well of some sort of bargain of if we do this, we're, we're not liable for additional harm. And there's discussion about NIST frameworks or NIST standards or this practice. If you've looked at what Mudge and his wife are doing, the Zatco's through cyber, the CITL, Cyber Independent Test Lab, it's on a binary at a time, but they're now generating an independently comparative FICO score of sorts for software quality or security which might feed into the risk selection of insurance premiums. We have really poor data, and I'd like to suggest that even though there are some insurance coverage programs he's talked about that could come into play, the fact that we can't get standing to take a case, we can't win a case, there's EULAs and um, lack of case law, we really haven't figured out how much payout there's going to be yet, right. but I think we're on the cusp of that. And that's why we really want to get in front of this. And one of the reasons for doing this today is we know tomorrow the, the report to the president's desk for the, uh, the Commission on Enhancing Cybersecurity comes out. And one of the reasons Sarah and I were asked to testify in Minnesota was they, they're taking a really hard look at food labels for IoT, some form of software liability. Uh, I think they're going to want to see projects like this. Might as well get it moving. Um, anything from the web? Not, nothing from the web. OK. Anybody else? I think, all right, I know I haven't called on you yet. Yeah. Let me pull that thread a little bit more. The framework process that worked out over the last few years, specifically though, do we think that if liability were thought to be or treated somewhat differently depending upon exactly where it was used, which sector, which, you know, is that going to turn out to be tractable? I want to make sure I understand the question. Um, same software in different use cases. I don't think I've gotten that question before, but I would think um, one of the things that the um, the medical regulator does right now is they expect um, that part of your submission is you're describing intended use and context and assumptions. And one of the things we're, I'm also on the Health and Human Services Cybersecurity Task Force, one of the things we're thinking of suggesting on top of that is that manufacturers provide a instructions for security or like we expect you're going to have a segmented <coughs> firewall, we expect this, so that uh, you're communicating intended use or safe use. Um, and it isn't used outside those contexts. So I don't know that's a complete answer, but it's an interesting question. Anybody else have anything to say? Yeah, I, think, I think intended use is going to have to come into it some, at some point because it, it goes back to the lock question, right? Yeah. If you're using a you know, uh, in, relatively insecure lock in a relatively safe neighborhood, that, that may be fine. And if you're using it in an unsafe neighborhood, that may be a, a bad idea. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that uh, I think this is going to get into like whether the whether the um, producer of the good uh, properly communicated whether you know what what are the context in which this is uh, okay to use. All right, I think it's uh, somebody over here. Yeah. So every software company. You want a mic? Oh. Every software company that's ever bought E and O um, 
protect is sort of done so with the idea that they're protecting themselves from some kind of liability. I've bought it myself. I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective on what are they really concerned about given the circumstances that we're talking about here today? I mean, what what, what liability is there that they're buying Eno for? There, there is liability you know, associated with that, especially for, for tech companies. And it came out of, look at the, you know, the consultative aspect to it. You know, there are... There, there are cases and there are settlements where, for instance, um, telecom, you know, the, the, the software provided was just not appropriate for the job. And while we didn't get, there weren't standing to bring that action, those cases were, were settled. Yeah. Contracts, if yeah, there's a contract, contract yeah. it's yeah. mostly under contract law right now, but it's definitely a risk there. It hasn't gone to tort, and, and that is the, the, the real, you know, but under the contract, it's, it's there now, you know. When things go boom, you know that's what we, that's what we're going to worry about. It's a nice yeah. definition of tort law. Yeah, tort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing we're also going to do, um, resource permitting, is we'd like to do some survey work and some and ask the public because we think that there's a there's a general public expectation that a lot of this stuff is already in place, and even the some of the economists and insurers I've spoken with were mortified to find out there isn't a whole lot of clarity on some of these topics. Uh, so I think, um, I'm not sure when uh, she's going to be done. I think she said a couple months. April or so? April, yeah, we're looking at April for maybe this Internet of Bodies legal comprehensive analysis. Uh, like I said before, um, we definitely want to pull the thread on some of the economists and other lenses represented here, but we also want to engage the public on reasonable expectations. We, Herb, Herb Lim and I were speaking at the commission in Minnesota about, you know, just spitballing how is this likely to manifest. And you can easily see a scenario where a family has a reasonable expectation that harm caused to their loved one due to a faulty part in the car is no different than harm caused to their family due to a faulty software library in their car. And at some point, if we get standing, if it isn't you know, contracted away through EULA, um, there's, that's where we'll get the case law. It's just some sort of override of, no, I know what the law says, but this family has a reasonable expectation um, that this was an avoidable harm, that kind of an argument. And I don't think we're going to pick the time and place of that, but I want to be ready when we have it. I think we have time for one or two quick ones. So doesn't that sound a lot like product liability law, that the elements are fairly similar in determining liability? Yes, but somehow software has been insulated in. Well, yeah, but if software causes a physical yeah. harm, then yes, and there is. I mean, product liability law is a fairly big body. There's design defects. Manufacturing defect probably would not apply. Um, there's failure to warn. Under a failure to warn, there's informed choice and risk reduction, and I think risk reduction could potentially come into play with some of what Josh is talking about. Like, yes, if you got over the physical harm thing, you would probably be looking at applying the product liability body of law to what might have happened. Okay, I'm, I'm, I think I've got the page. Yeah, this is the it's a good or a, a product, right? Versus yes. a service versus, I mean, it gets, Yes. I hope I didn't open that can of worms. Oh okay. gosh. Okay. <laughs> Literally, you take entire courses on this stuff. It's, yeah. it's complicated, yeah. Oh, I'm not gonna find it quickly enough. But uh, this is the part where the CFAA essentially insulated in 2001 software manufacturers. This is a really short but powerful line. Oh, here we go. 
In 2001, Congress amended the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was in introduced in 84, really ratified in 86. Um, no action may be brought for negligent design or manufacture of computer hardware, computer software, or firmware. In effect, Congress made it legal for software manufacturers, legal for software manufacturers, what was unacceptable for anyone else to do. Um, and this included adding logic and time bombs to shutting off uh, support if people um, tried to bring suit. So that particular line was particularly damaging to the prospect of getting to winning a case, even if you got standing. But we want to dig into this more. I know Andrea's looked at that. So, yes. The statute actually says no action may be brought under this subsection okay. for the negligent design, which is absolutely critical. Okay. So what the lawyer will explain is that there's, you know, a duty of care can be imposed by statute or can be imposed based on a reasonable person standard. Mm -hmm. And so that all this is saying is you can't base the, the liability on this sta statute for negligent design. Okay. does not exclude the reasonable standard care. Yeah, in fact, I think originally the chapter was talking about um, things that are illegal for a researcher or a hacker to do were being done routinely by software manufacturers, so they gave them that carve out, yeah. Which I think is a little funny. But. Doug. All right, so actual question this time. So the Mr. Stressley thing I heard tracking back about five or 10 minutes was the statement that if you have potential for product liability, but then it's looking at reasonable cases and that person's like, well, I didn't think about it being combined with another product. Right, right. Is that sort of a rough restatement of what you said? Um, um, I so think it's, it's building on your security is not composable point. It, well, the idea was that basically if, you, if you're not thinking about combining with other products, that's okay. Isn't the internet Maybe. by default? <laughs> Can I give the attorney thing of it depends? I was saying if your product is unsafe only in combination with another product, it, a defense would be the reasonable Exactly. So can't any internet of thing creator on the planet basically say that, hey, my security camera's just fine. I didn't expect it would be combined with 5 million other security cameras and yeah. used to dial a service a DNS provider. Never worked that. I think we have to... I mean, how Surf I think we have to surface these use cases and wrestle them to the ground. Well, so that's, that's yeah. I guess, my question then to the panel real quick is, how the heck do you move past that one? Because honestly, this has been a security problem that I've dealt with for decades in my career is once you plug it into the internet, you're playing with other people whether you like it or not. And most people build completely ignorant of that. So for so. one, reasonable alternative design is not used by every court. It is a defense. It's used in many cases. It is not the only way you look at design defects. So I, I am doing so much glossing over here. It's like killing. I'm saying like it depends, it depends, it depends to myself. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, my, one partial response for me is what I said to a different question, which is that um, I, th I think part of the, a reasonable and sustainable rubric that will last over time is going to be what are the minimum expectations or negligence standards here. If you have a hard-coded hard password, unpatchable, et cetera, you're not safe in combination with anything. Um, so I, I think part of it's going to have to be um, that. I think a part of it could be you should be able to articulate the intended uses. This is being used this way, this way, this way. If, if your device doesn't even function unless it's depending on this other thing, that's part of its definition. And this could get really complicated and really ugly, but right now, just to quote a stat from my last job, when we did the first software supply chain um, um, analysis in history on the, the relative hygiene of commercial software. 
And what we found on average was 106 unique third-party open source libraries. And about a quarter by ratio had known vulnerabilities in them. And some of these were incredibly old known vulnerabilities. And the fix had been available for years, and no one was doing it. While we were at RSA that year, uh, a security product shipped over a calendar year after Heartbleed came out with Heartbleed in it. So there are some of these things that if we scope and define it intelligently and reasonably, um, we don't have to get into security nihilism of what if this and what if that and what if that um, and you know could you know super ninjas with black hoodies do this? Um, there, there's going to be an 80-20 rule where we can do something practical, reasonable that reduces massive categories of harm. Uh, and I'm of the firm belief that choosing to do nothing is no longer a viable choice. I don't know what the right answer is, but I want to surrender myself to the process and work with folks to figure out what some alternatives might look like. All right, we're a few minutes past time, but I'd like to thank the people who showed up, thank our panelists, thank Bruce Schneier. Can we have a clap for everybody? <laughs> this is a massively complicated topic, but why don't we continue some of the discussion over uh, some refreshments in the hallway. Thank you. <laughs>